Please stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's word. Continue our reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through the end of the chapter. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love defiles. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not condemn us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not this conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, and brother, for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Sends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Mere knowledge puffs up. Part two. That's where we're at this morning. Before we look at God's word, let's pray once again. Holy Spirit of God, we pray now that you would hold us in attention here this morning. Grant me the grace to communicate your word to your people, build them up, to build us up, to understand that we might more greatly glorify you in all that we do. For Christ's sake, amen. We continue here in the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, our subject is Christian liberty. Christian liberty, it's use and abuse. Last time we were reminded that um, doctrinal insight and personal convictions, if they are marked only by knowledge, puffs one up. If marked by love, it builds others up. Neither in themselves is enough. Doctrinal knowledge is not enough, separated from love. And mere love without proper knowledge just most oftentimes leads to sappy sentiment. So we need both knowledge and love. Now, for all of us who do know some biblical doctrine, it's important that um, we must realize that the doctrine that we um, hold to 
um, is something that should make a difference in our lives. Amen. So the question for us might be, you know, um, does what you know um, make you fragrant um, or foul? Um, does what you know um, attract um, or, or does it repel? See, while some of the Corinthians may have had their theology down, um, they were not allowing it to shape their lives. They were not allowing it to shape their, their attitudes and their actions. Now, although they had crossed all of their theological T's and dotted all of their I's, their theology not rightly applied, as we'll see here, um, was leading them into error and damaging others along the way. Their brothers and sisters in the congregation there. Now, apparently... Some of the Corinthian believers were attending feasts in pagan temples, um, eating food sacrificed to idols there um, in the temple, most likely the temple of Aphrodite centered there um, overlooking um, the city of Corinth. And by their example, they were attempting other Christians to do the same. We see that in verse 10. Now, as we see here, um, proper Doctrinal knowledge teaches us that meat sacrificed to idols is meaningless in and of itself. Because the idols are meaningless. Okay? However, such knowledge, if not tempered with love for others, that is, others whose conscience uh, may be weak in this area, actually defiles a brother. Now, most of the believers in Corinth, prior to coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, would have attended such meals and gatherings like this all their lives. Okay, And again, um, a little reminder, the temples in the first century, served both religious um, and social gatherings. There were indeed cultic practices and fornication with temple prostitutes um, that went along with those practices, while at the same time, at the other end of the temple, in these banquet halls, they held everyday events. I mean, everything from birthday and, and wedding celebrations to business trade guild meetings every day. This is everyday life. So the banquet halls attached to these temples were to them what the modern restaurant is to us. However, when people gathered for such a meal in the temple or in the banquet hall of a temple, um, it was common to begin um, with a sacrifice to the deity to which that particular temple was dedicated. And then the diners would consume what was left over of the sacrifice. So during you know, dinners of this kind, um, a non-Christian who hosted the event um, would likely perform a toast 
to the Greek gods and the cultural reality then placed these new Christians in Corinth into a theological and, and ethical um, dilemma, right? It was great confusion over the matter. You know, what, what should a believer do if they're invited to a birthday party in the local temple? Okay, what do I do now that I'm in Christ? How should they respond when, you know, the guys want to go out after um, the Isthmian game events, right? The Isthmian games were held in Corinth, second um, only to that of the Olympics that were held in Greece. So the boys want to go out after the games, you know, into one of these temples. What do I do? What if, what if some believers um, had no problem whatsoever with, with feasting around idolatry while others did? You know, was this guilt by um, association um, if believers participate? So the believers in Corinth, um, they wrote the Apostle Paul, who at the time was in Ephesus, a, a series of questions. If you notice back in chapter 7, in verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote. Okay, and here now, we, we've covered a number of those things. Here in chapter 8, I'm now considering things sacrificed to idols. We all have knowledge. Verse 1. Um, again, for those of you who weren't with us, we need to make this known. Um, this was a Corinthian slogan. Okay, the Corinthians, the believers there, had many slogans. Um, one was, um, food is for the stomach and stomach is for food, which meant sex is for the body and body is for sex. They had all kinds of slogans, and here, we all have knowledge, was another one. Now remember, um, the Corinthians, the Christians there, living in the midst of Greek culture, loved rhetoric. They loved philosophic, philosophical arguments, worldly wisdom. They loved um, esoteric, exaggerated spirituality, and they most certainly loved gnosis, knowledge. Why? Because all of that fed into their attitude of hyper-spiritual elitism. This is what Paul addresses here. So they identify themselves with things that make people proud. We know. We have knowledge. So this slogan likely became for some of these Christians... For some of them there in Corinth, justification for attending pagan feasts and dining in idols' temples. So what they were doing is really, you know, preening their feathers on the fact that they know sound doctrine regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, their everyday life was not being penetrated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a problem. So as a result, um, they were sinning against their brother or sister by causing them to stumble. Now, verse 1, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies, says Paul. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. So we looked at those three verses last time. Paul spins this. He flips the script, right? You want to talk about knowledge? You don't know anything other than the fact that, that you're known by God. 
And the only reason you know anything doctrinally is that God knows you. He's made himself known to you, Corinthians. Isn't that great? Masterful. Now, while this issue is not common to Western Christians, um, this passage is still relevant for us, beloved, so don't check out. Amen? We don't deal with sacrificed meat in pagan temples, uh, but it does touch on the nature of sacrificing our rights for the sake um, of other brothers and sisters. And that is so that we don't endanger um, the spiritual well-being of the church family. So, indeed, it begins with proper knowledge. All things begin with proper knowledge. And let's begin now looking at verse 4. Proper knowledge fact number one. Okay? Notice. Therefore, therefore, Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Now, by the way, that's not Paul's last word on the matter. Um, Although idols, the gods of paganism, although they're non-existent, they are the figment of the sinful imaginations of fallen mankind. They're not what they claim to be. Amen? They don't exist. And in chapter 10, he will clarify, however, that there are demonic powers behind those false gods. They don't exist, but Satan does masquerade as an angel of light. He masquerades. That's what false religion is. It's a masquerade of apparent light, and all there is is darkness. So he will touch on that when we get to chapter 10. And nevertheless, man-made gods are no gods at all. Paul's teaching, the Corinthians, certainly corresponds with his preaching, does it not? You remember when we were in the book of Acts, chapter 19, when Paul went into Ephesus, and he was the cause um, for yet another riot to break out? So he preached there, and a a man by the name of Demetrius, who was a seller of silver shrines, because of the effect of Paul's preaching, many people came to faith, and Demetrius and others were basically put out of business. And Demetrius said this, this Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people and says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Can you believe it? Kill the man. (laughs) Okay, fact. There is no corresponding reality to the God of any idol. That is the idol, you know, whoever he represents, or whoever it or she represents. There's no such being as the Greek god Zeus. There's no such being as as Venus or Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And in Corinth, there was the temple of Aphrodite. So there are many idols representing these gods, but they don't exist, says Paul. There's no such thing. This we, what? We know this. There is no God but one. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods... Whether in heaven, 
or on earth, whether they represent the sun, the moon, the stars, or the rivers and the lakes, heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. In other words, in the heathen world, many are called gods. Truth might be relative to them. By the way, no one really believes truth is relative. You know, today people say, well, truth is relative. You know, what, 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 what God means to you doesn't, you know, isn't for another and so on. But I can prove to them, just a five-minute conversation, that they don't really believe that truth is relative, right? As soon as you threaten to take their purse or take their car or whatever it may be, because I'm stronger than you, because I can whoop you, and my worldview says the strong survive. So who are you? Who are you to challenge my worldview? See, you don't believe truth is relative, do you? No. No one truly does. So here in the heathen world, many, he says, are called gods. Yet, verse 6, for us there is but one God. There's one God. He's the way, the truth, and life. The Father, notice, from whom all things exist, from whom all things exist, verse 6, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So here he teaches monotheism, there is but one God. And in remembering Greek, uh, Roman culture, it was commonplace to speak of their deities as, as gods, kurios. And here Paul he, he, he explains repeatedly that Jesus is truly Lord. He's truly curious. Amen? Notice, yet for us, there's but one God, the Father. Okay? In other words, the Father is the source of creation from whom, from whom all things exist. Jesus, the Son, he's the agent of creation. Notice, by whom all things exist. Remember, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They're one in essence, they're one in nature. Christ is mediatorial king. He's Lord of all. He's Lord over all. The resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. If you notice, Paul does not go on to explain his high Christology. He doesn't break down a teaching on the Trinity because there was no need to do that. He had already spent 18 months with the Corinthians and they knew that. Okay? There's one Lord. From whom and through whom are all things. So Paul, he argues from monotheism. He argues from creation. And he wants to work it into the practical aspect of our Christian lives. So theology proper, in other words, leads to doxology. A proper knowledge of God leads to the praise of God. And from out of that, praxis, the practical living out of the gospel. So proper knowledge, doxology, and from out of doxology leads a life realizing that, verse 6, we exist for him, for him. So here the Paul, Paul the pastor, the theologian, um, again is trying to reshape their minds according to the gospel that they proclaim to know so much about. They have all this knowledge. 
So the, the, the know-it-all Corinthians, the knowledgeable Corinthians, uh, probably thought when they penned Paul asking about these particular matters, would think that here um, he's going to be on our team. After all, he taught us about all this. He was God's instrument of this heavenly divine knowledge. So um, he's going to probably respond in agreement to us saying, yeah, you weaker believers need to get it together. You need to grow up. If that is what they thought, they're in for a bit of shock. Paul now tackles the problem. Notice more directly, he, he wants to def, def, deflate their puffed upness that we see in verses 7 to 13. Look at verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Okay? So, obviously, these people are believers. Notice, they had been, they had been, past tense, accustomed to the idol until now. So this implies that they were former idol worshipers. And, and that paganism, okay, this form of paganism still has a major influence in how they think about idol meat and temples. Some having weaker consciences were being led to eat meat, idol meat, against their conscience. That's what he's after. That's the rebuke. Now, maybe they were made to feel ashamed because they weren't mature enough, you know, and they wanted to participate with the strong. And yet, as they went along, their consciences were screaming, this isn't right, this isn't right. But the ones who have the knowledge, they're free to do this, but it just doesn't feel right so association with the old, with these old pagan practices made them feel unclean and ashamed so these are believers friends these are new believers who have not yet put two and two together as it were they're very immature they still think idols are something they still think idols have, have power. Their, their weak conscience causes this kind of, of fear um, and shame being led into this pagan practice. Their conscience is deficient because their knowledge is deficient. This is why doctrine is so important, amen? The teaching of doctrine is very, very important but we don't stop there. He has to be met with love. That's his point. You know, sometimes Christians with a weak conscience who, who never mature, they never grow in doctrinal depth, can develop um, a judgmental spirit that forms, you know, legalistic notions. A form of legalism. Denying them, and if they had it their way, would deny others particular freedoms that we have in Christ. Have you ever met them? Hopefully you're not one. 
that if we, you are, we want you to grow in knowledge. On the other hand, refraining from any kind of activity that invites temptation, now that reveals wisdom and a discerning conscience. But I don't need to lay some law or put a list on the wall of things we can't do because we're Christians because it, it violates my conscience if those things in and of themselves are not evil or immoral. Are you with me? All right. Okay, that was proper knowledge fact number one. Proper knowledge fact number two, notice verse eight. But food, okay, but food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Now, commentators debate whether this is also a Corinthian slogan or not. Food will not commend us to God. Could be. Anyone has the ESV? Is it, does it happen to be in quotes? You have the ESV? It's not in quotes? Okay. It's, notice this is a triple negative, so it's kind of confusing to read. Um, we are not worse for not eating. Okay, we are not worse for not eating. Um, not eating won't add anything to our spiritual lives, says Paul. It, it will not improve our standing with God through Christ because we don't eat. Nor, notice, are we the better if we do eat. In other words, we won't benefit if we don't or if we do eat. And in this context, this meat. In other words, eating certain foods or not does not make you holier or more acceptable to God. So if you happen to be one of these people who only eat before the fall food, Dawn, <laughs> but you know that does not commend you before God. Amen. I know you get jealous when you smell those hamburgers cooking. <laughs> you know, some people actually think that by submitting to old covenant law, dietary laws, somehow makes them holier and, and more special in the sight of God. <laughs> That's a lie. Amen. Okay, proper knowledge fact number two, food will not commend us to God. Now, what's interesting is that Paul um, does not once criticize those weak in conscience, those who do not have this knowledge. So in, in other words, the ones who are wrong in this situation are the ones who are described as being more knowledgeable. <laughs> he doesn't rebuke those weak in conscience. Okay, we, we know idols are nothing. Proper knowledge fact number one, uh, we know food does not commend us to God. Proper knowledge fact number two, and that leads to proper knowledge fact number three. Knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. Verse nine, but take care. Okay, notice, but, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So he's addressing those who have the knowledge. They have a strong conscience in Christ. 
So in other words, you know, while you're congratulating yourselves on how mature you are to be able to dine out, <laughs> there are other believers who are saying, I used to go to that temple. I know what goes on in that temple. I used to participate with things that go on in that temple. I can't go back into that temple. You see? So the know-it-alls, they thought because they had certain knowledge, now think that they have certain rights to do as they please. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds others up, writes Paul. Paul says, no, you're only becoming a stumbling block to those. You're actually causing others to fall into sin, leading them into a situation they cannot handle. You know, you may go in there and eat meat, and that's all you're doing. You're just eating meat. The fact that it was you know, sacrificed to some idol is nothing to you because you know you have knowledge. Those idols, those gods, they don't exist. But if he goes, if you lead him back into that temple trying to pressure him, he may get caught up in the immorality and the orgies that occur on the other side of the banquet hall, the banquet hall wall. <laughs> and that's the reason God has given him or her a closed conscience at this point to keep them out of areas that they are not yet ready to go into, though they're free. So don't force them, don't pressure them, don't mislead these people to do things that they feel, at least at this time, are wrong. Though they're not wrong in and of themselves. Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened? That means emboldened. To eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, this is pressure put on them to conform. You know, conscience functions as a kind of judge, amen? It's like a referee. This is right, that's wrong. This is, this is good and that's evil. And because their conscience at this point is not based on true knowledge, as soon as they begin to eat, their conscience begins to rebel. Now, you've pressured them to go with you, to get over their weakness, and here they are. Their conscience now rebels, and they become um, now defiled with fear and guilt. Or even worse, they become open to false notions of religious syncretism the worship of the one true God, and now taking pagan activities and mixing those worship forms together of false deities with the one true God. You could lead them into that. Now, we don't have pagan temples in our day. We don't deal with meat sacrificed to idols for the most part. It's not part of our social structure. It was for them. This was everyday life, right? Right? If your kid has a birthday, 
In our day, you go to Chuck E. Cheese. In their day, you went to the banquet hall attached to the temple. This was life. Now, we do have believers, fellow believers, who come from certain backgrounds. That is, this is what they used to be before Christ. This is who they are now in Christ. So we must be careful not to put a stumbling block before them. That's the principle. Something that would lead them back into the very things God had delivered them out of. You know, Martin Luther's um, a, a treatise on Christian liberty um, captures the thrust of what the Apostle Paul is saying here, and it goes like this, quote, A Christian is perfectly free of all, subject to none. A Christian is perfectly dutiful, servant of all, subject to all, end quote. Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Wow. Now, ruined, the word ruined um, or destroyed, um, some have concluded that this refers to eternal destruction, that you could somehow, you know, lose your salvation, that it's referring to, you, you lead this the person to perdition. But what Paul does here is he uses phenomenological language, okay? And that is language of the way things appear. Are you with me? So this person, okay, this weak conscience person, but by all practical intents and purposes, he's a Christian. He says he's a Christian. He or she appears to be a Christian. And then that person, when they see their brother or sister eating in the pagan temple, see, that represents old life to them. This is what I've come out of. So now they're emboldened in that, and they go back into that. They reimmerse themselves into that, and now they rejoin themselves to those who are perishing. You've ruined your brother, he says. So the passage is, is intended to sting for the know-it-alls the knowledgeable, so as to see how serious it is in causing one to stumble. This is what he's after. So the key, I think, to, to seeing this correctly is to consider Paul's point that Christ has died for such a person. Okay? Christ sacrificed himself for this person, therefore we too need to act towards that brother or sister in a sacrificial way if they're still uh, weak in conscience. Amen? I think that's the principle. So it, it should put fear um, into the strong-minded believer's heart if we would ever lead someone to be emboldened to go back to their old life, so to speak. Okay? So now he says, verse 12, but when you sin against the brother, brethren and wound their weak conscience, now you sin against Christ for they're part of the body of Christ. Amen? And therefore, it's serious, and now it's I who am sinning. This reminds us of what Jesus said, does it not? Beware lest 
any of you would cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for you if a millstone, which weighed 300 pounds, donkey millstone, were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. It would be better that that would happen than for you have to have to face me in judgment. I fear the parents whose little children love Jesus and they they try to quench that. Beware. Pass it on. Verse 13. Therefore, okay, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, says the apostle Paul, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Stumble is the word scandalizo, scandalize. To scandalize my brother. It means to set a trap, to lead them into a baited trap. So, so the point is that the freedom enjoyed by the strong, if it is misused, if it causes the weak to, to fall into um, a trap, to be scandalized, beware. And, and he does speak with a level of hyperbole here. You know, if my brother is caused to stumble, you know, I'll never eat meat again. Yeah, there's some hyperbole there, right? He's just trying to show how earnest and passionate he is uh, with regard to this matter is what Paul is after here. So, in other words, Paul is, is so concerned to present um, every man mature in Christ, he himself wants to be sure that, that he would never um, hinder a weaker brother. That's what he means there. And therefore, his rights, his liberty it is surrendered. He realize, realizes sometimes he may have to put those liberties on hold for the weaker brother. Still with me? Okay, good. When liberty might cause another to stumble, the point of the passage is that love for that brother will restrict your liberty at that moment for their good. Love limits our liberty. So the stronger to act with consideration for the weak Christian brother or sister in love, okay? Now, that's the account, okay? That's the account. Before we look at some applicable points, um, I want to point out misapplication of this text. It is often misapplied. We do not want to fall into that danger, amen? Misapplication number one. Misapplication, again, misapplication number one Everything is relative to personal conscience. In other words, since we have knowledge that we are justified by faith in Christ alone, with which we open the service with, we're declared free from all blame. My righteousness is Christ's righteousness placed upon my account. So I'm as righteous as Christ in the sight of God. I'm justified, declared free from all blame, okay? And therefore, I'm free to do as I please. Misapplication number one. Christian liberty is not liberty to do whatever we want, wherever we want, whenever we want. Did I say whenever twice? Okay, whenever, whenever, wherever. With whomever. 
those who adhere to um, antinomianism fall prey to that. Antinomian means to be um, against law. It means no law. Okay? So uh, many people, unfortunately, think that free grace means to be without law, period. No guidelines, period. They love the indicatives of Scripture, okay? The facts that say you are declared righteous in Christ and Christ alone. And they hate the imperatives, the commands of Scripture given to Christians. As Paul gave one back in chapter 6, those of you who think you're so free to go down to the temple and join yourself to temple prostitutes, no, flee from immorality. That was a command. That's an imperative. Christian liberty is not a free pass to do whatever you want. In other words, you, you don't have the liberty as a Christian to live with your girlfriend or boyfriend. <laughs> you don't have liberty you know, to commit adultery against your spouse, to be involved in debauchery. You don't have liberty to steal from your employer, amen? And you don't have liberty to use profanity. Example, sometimes I meet these young men who, who are introduced to Reformed theology, as they should be. They embrace Reformed theology, as they ought, and then they misapply it. And they think they can talk however they want, go wherever they want, do whatever they want. And, and then it's like, dude, are you a Christian? What, what's with all the profanity? You know what profanity is, right? It's a puny mind trying to communicate. Throw that at someone next time. I didn't coin that. I, I think Piper quote coined that. But profanity is a puny mind trying to communicate. So if you're around someone who cusses a lot, uses profanity, you don't have to say, you know, that offends me because I'm a Christian. Say, you know what? I said this to a guy once. Every other word, every other word. And he was obviously not a Christian, but, well, not obviously. I think he was not a Christian. <laughs> Sounded like he wasn't a Christian. I said, you know what, Th this is back when I was working in heavy construction and all this, and I'm walking a job, and he he's a design builder. And he was remarkably talented. I go, dude, everything you've shown me, you've designed? He goes, that's right. I go, you're a pretty, pretty intelligent cat. I said, you know, you, you throw the F-bomb like every other word. And, and that shows me you're not as intelligent as you appear to be. Because profanity is just a puny mind trying to communicate. Don't you have a better vocabulary than that? He did not know what to say. <laughs> First, I complimented him. I build him up. <laughs> it works. Try it sometime. David Garland says this, commentator, quote, Christianity does not require the Gentiles to become Jews, but it does not allow Gentile Christians to continue to be pagans. End of quote. Okay, that's misapplication number one. Misapplication number two, okay, considering those who are weak in conscience, Paul is not talking about merely offending other Christians. Being weak in conscience, Paul is not referring to merely offending someone because many fundamentalist Christians, quote, end quote, 
use this passage right here, chapter 8, 1 Corinthians, to, to make others conform to their own personal taboos. Oh. Some will say, you know, that stumbles me. Okay? And, and what they're referring to is morally neutral activities when what they really mean is that that offends me. Okay, that offends me. Okay, this passage, 1 Corinthians 8, is not a club for others to conform to your personal behavior. I don't watch football on the Lord's Day, and neither should you, because that offends me. Okay, get some thicker skin then. We, we should not allow offended people to, to blackmail the freedoms of others in Christ. And don't do that. I don't think we have that problem here at all. Some of you that come from those backgrounds, it can be so burdensome. Because that offends me, Okay, because that offends me, or it might offend others, we should make it a moral prohibition for everyone. Let's put a list on the wall in the fellowship hall so we all know that we don't dance or play cards or whatever. So they create extra biblical absolutes, man-made lists for everyone to follow. That is a misapplication of this text, beloved. Are you with me? If one has a particular conviction, personal conviction, not to participate in this, that, or the other, that is fine. But do not create absolutes for others when it's not biblical. Don't go to a restaurant on the Lord's Day. That's fine. That is fine if that's a personal conviction. It's wonderful. Just don't block the way to in and out if I want to stop on the way home. In other words, there must be spiritual discernment. We must have spiritual discernment between the weak who have a genuine conscience issue over such matters, matters as compared to those who are just a genuine pain in the neck, rigorous legalists. Let us have discernment between the two. There are people who simply love to find fault with everyone and everything that is contrary to their list of rules that they've been adding to ever since they were converted. Irritating. So they, they operate basically from um, a legalistic framework of life. Now, this does not mean that. Those who are offended by rock or, or rap music or someone drinking alcohol or watching certain movies, fair enough. That's fine. But do not create prohibitions because you're simply offended. Okay? So we have to be discerning. What, what, what would cause one to stumble and what is this that you're just simply offended? All right? Now, Christians like that, Christians who are like that, um, oftentimes have not considered how non-Christians see their lives, okay? 
in that everything seems to be a taboo for them. Interpreted as Christianity is just a list of a bunch of stuff I can't do. A bunch of boring people. Well, yeah. Uh, um, well, back in the day, it was, you drink coffee? Well, sure I do. I thought you were a Christian. <laughs> or, you know, you listen to rock, at my house, it's, you, rock and roll? Yeah. I dig rock and roll. But I thought you were a Christian, but I am. So, oh, you can do that? What do you mean, can I do that? What, what does that mean? Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, if you look at it, Paul reminds believers that we associate with immoral people in this world. Okay, now notice. Verse 9, yeah, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Okay, remember there was a man who was mixed up in immorality in the church. That's what he's addressing. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. I don't want you to go out of the world, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not to even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Answer, yes. That's what church discipline is all about. Now, in the next chapter, Paul will encourage believers to become all things to all men so that we, we might, by all means, win some to Christ. Okay, that is, in, in um, morally neutral areas, obviously, believers should be willing to engage culture. Amen? How else are they going to see light? Now, two tr those are misapplications of the text. Now, two truths, almost done, that stand out from this first century concern. First, consciences are not infallible. Amen? Consciences are not infallible. In other words, they are not foolproof. Our conscience must be educated by the word of God. Now, don't, lesson one is don't violate your conscience. But nevertheless, our consciences continually have to be educated by the word of God. And while they're hopefully being educated, they also need to be respected. So if I have a weak conscience brother or sister, weak conscienced brother or sister, I need to respect that. All right. Those with a strong conscience... They were theologically educated, obviously, here in, in Corinth. They, they knew idols were nothing, and they were right. Okay, They were correct on the matter, but they had little respect for the weak. That was the problem. Little respect. Bulldozing over other people's consciences. Riding roughshod over the weak. We don't want to do that. So those with the weak conscience, they needed more proper understanding, and the strong needed more gentleness. That's what we do learn from this text. This is what we take away. Truth number two, 
Love limits liberty. Christian love limits Christian liberty. Um, Our conscience, as educated by the word of God, does in fact give us great freedom of action in Christ. Yet it does not allow us to assert our freedom at other people's expense. Amen? Orthodoxy without love, proper knowledge, proper theology without love, Paul will tell this same group of people in chapter 13, all that is is a gong, 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 clanging bell. Same group of people. So having true knowledge, go back, look at verse 3 as we wrap up. Having true knowledge, we love God, notice, because we're known by God. Okay? And therefore, that is how we're known. How are we known? Well, not for how much we know, but for how much we love God, that is, for who he is. And from out of that, the brethren, for whose they are. They're his. They're his. So clarity concerning the word of God for you may not be the clarity that others have, at least at this point in time, when it comes to Christian liberty. So love will limit liberty for the sake of the brother, brother or sister if need be. So there may be times where we hang it on the hook, we put it on hold for our brother or sister. So, to wrap up, I wrap up with this. If there is an imperative to be followed, that is a command for the Christian, it must be enforced. Right? Plain and simple. Okay? If there's not a command, there will be a principle to follow, such as 1 Corinthians 8. We don't have meats and sacrifice to idols and temples on every corner as they did. So if there's a principle to be followed, you must discern by the word of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit how to apply that principle. Right? And we may seek counsel from one another along the way, going back to the word of God. Because none of us lives for ourselves, and none of us die to ourselves simply for ourselves. Did you follow that? But for the sake of others, for the glory of Christ, the head of his church. So theology is more than right doctrine. It is right application because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's all Paul is after in this text with regard to this first century issue. Okay, that's for the Christian. Now, if you're not in Christ, if you're here and you're listening to all this freedom, say, man, I don't know, this just sounds confusing and it's just a lot of stuff to know. I'm truly free because I believe whatever it is you believe. I believe that, you know, they may believe Jesus is a way. I believe there are other ways to God so long as you are genuine in whatever you believe. Newsflash. You're on the broad road that leads to hell, said Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is but one way, you're en route to hell. The good news is, 
to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you too shall be saved, like those sitting around you this morning. Saved from the wrath of God due to you because of your sin and sinfulness. That's God's wrath. That's what Jesus took upon himself. When he came down from heaven, second person of the Godhead, to take on human flesh, he went to the cross as God decreed, preordained. And on the cross, as he hung there, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he forsaken by God? Yes, make no mistake about it. Yes. He was taking God's punishment as God turned his face, his love from his son, and poured out his justice and died. Three days later, all he taught and all the Old Testament taught about him was validated by his resurrection. Had he not been raised from the dead, we wouldn't be here today and you'd be hopeless. So if you believe there are more ways than one to God, to heaven, repent of that. Change how you think. Because to deny me before the Father said, Jesus, I will deny you before my Father. And on that day, I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, though you claim to know me as one way. He is the way. Repent and believe, and you shall be saved from the wrath of God, which is eternal hell, and you will be granted eternal life in Christ alone. Father, thank you for the true freedom we have in Christ, the freedom that we have from the bondage of sin, from the certainty of death, and worse than that, the second death, eternal destruction, because you laid it upon your son, condemned in our place. Lord, bless this truth to your people this day and grant saving faith to those who entered in or who are listening who do not believe that today would be the day that they were born of God according to your grace for your glory and their good, for Christ's sake. Amen.